And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Thanks. Let's pray one more time together. God, we give you thanks for this night where we get to come under your word and learn from you. And we pray that you would come now by your spirit. That you would work and uh, that you would speak through me so as to change us. So as to remind us and convict us of the reality of your spirit's presence. That you have come to set us free, Lord, that we could turn and set others free. So would you come now by your spirit, we pray, in the strong name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. It's good to be with you again. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Um, We're going to just jump right in. I'm okay. Um, So I grew up hearing stories from my parents uh, about days of great revival, days where the, the, the people would be grabbing the back of the pews and their knuckles would turn white under conviction of sin. And sometimes my mom would report she saw this as a teenager. People would, before the preacher finished, get up and run to the front and just fall in a puddle of tears before the Lord at the altar, just asking God for forgiveness of sins. She said that in town in West Virginia, she, she saw people, uh, the bars would be emptied, and churches would be filled. And, and this was just one example of revival that, uh, that was happening around the world in, in the 70s. And, and so she would tell me about this, and, and with some fear, you know, a little bit of trepidation, I was like, I, I want to experience this. And she would always tell me, I, I've prayed for you since you were a, a little baby, even in, our, in, in my womb, that you get to experience the power of the Holy Spirit, that you get to experience revival like this. Uh, and and I, I wanted this, and, and I even wanted more uh, to, to be used by God in that way, where I would be able to preach God's word and see people come to know him. That was, that was a desire of my heart. And yet, when I looked at my life and my track record, I thought, there's no way. I, I really, I'm not really faithful with the word or prayer. I don't, I mean, I sin. How could God want to use me? The reality is, the spirit of God is present just like he was just during those stories that my mom told me. He's present all over the world right now, bringing conviction to people's hearts Right now, over 2 billion people around the world call Jesus Savior and Lord. And that number is being added to daily, some say by the millions. 
and in the most unusual places, two places where the gospel seems to, to be squashed by the powers uh, of government and, and such, like Iran, North Korea, China, the gospel is spreading and it can't be stopped, it seems. Even in our midst today, we're, we're seeing people gripped with conviction. We're seeing the Holy Spirit at work. We're seeing the living Christ continue to show up and call people by name to follow him. And I believe this. I believe that Christ is alive and by his spirit he is active amongst us right here. He's active with us. Amen? And, and he's active and I've, I've gotten to be a part of some of that. I've gotten to here and across the seas see people come to faith and yet still, still I look at my life and I so often ask the question God, could you really use me like you used those men that my mom told, about, told me about or, or the stories and biographies that I read about? Could you really use me like that? Could you really use me like the stories I'm reading in Acts? Where you're seeing thousands come to faith through preaching? Maybe some of you resonate with this. Where it's, it's hard to believe that God could use you in these sort of ways. Some of you may even have this feeling like, no, that's just not me. I, I will never be that type of Christian. I'm not going to be radical like that. Uh, maybe, maybe you understand the mission of God today. Maybe you understand and really love the idea of making disciples, but you're still wrestling with the how. The how behind the task. How do we accomplish this mission that Christ has given to us to make disciples of all nations? I want to answer the question today, how did Jesus accomplish his mission? How did Jesus accomplish his mission, and how does he expect us to accomplish that same mission. My prayer today is that everyone here, every believer in this room would come to have a strong confidence that the Spirit of God is alive and active in you for powerful, bold, and effective witness. That's my prayer today. Here's where we're going. I have the outline up on the screen. Jesus' mission we're going to see that in verses 16 and 19. We're going to take a step back and see Jesus' power in verses 14 and also in verse 18. And then we're going to bring some application and see the church's mission as well as the church's power. Before we dive in, I need you to know that this, this text, uh, if you follow it, the narrative goes all the way to verse 30, and there is just far too much in this text for us to cover in one week. So Ross is going to pick up uh, with the, the rest of the narrative next week. I always love it when you do, so I'm excited for your, your preaching next week. But I'm going to focus on Jesus' relationship with the Holy Spirit for mission. So that being said, let's look at the first point. Jesus' mission. So verses 14 and 15 record that after Jesus was baptized and tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan, he returned to Galilee the region where he grew up, and, and he was teaching in the local synagogues. First thing that Jesus does, he's teaching. Synagogues are, are these, these small communities 
uh, Jewish communities, they had about 20 to 30 people where people would gather for worship. They, they didn't have access to the word, so they would come to hear the word read, to hear the word taught, and to sing psalms and hymns together. So he's, he's teaching. He's teaching all through Galilee, and then we get this little glimpse of what that was like in verse 16 when we see Jesus coming to his hometown synagogue. Read that with me, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Just imagine this scene. He's, he's come back to his hometown where he's known, to the synagogue where he's, he's frequented. And he gets up to read to a small group of people though I'm sure there's some hype around this man. It says that there's this report that's gone out about him. So everybody's kind of ear-tuned in a little bit more to what he's about to say. Who is this Jesus that we're hearing reports about? Who is this one that we know, but maybe we don't know all that well? So he stands up, and, and we're told that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. That's no coincidence, I don't think. And Jesus found the place, we're told, where it was written. And let's read verses 18 and 19 again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Just imagine him standing reading this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is reading from Isaiah 58, verse 6, and 61, 1 and 2. And Luke says that after he had read these passages, he rolls up this cumbersome, this big scroll, and he goes and he sits down, and all the eyes of the people were on him, waiting to hear what he would say. I'm sure you could hear a pin drop in that room. And he says, today, these scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. Luke tells us that he, quote, began to say these things. So that would imply that there's a lot more words that Jesus used in this little sermon, but that the main point, these words that, we've just, that I've just read are fulfilled today in your hearing. You should be asking as you read this, how, Jesus? He's just sitting there. It's not like there's a blind man that's come in that he's you know, open his eyes. He's not set a prisoner free. So how? How, Jesus, has this been fulfilled in your hearing? Jesus was making a very strong claim right here. He was claiming that in him, the kingdom of God had come. There's this section from Isaiah chapter 42 to Isaiah 66 that unpacks this individual 
called the servant of the Lord. You see these servant songs sprinkled throughout. And this, this servant of the Lord is, is prophesied as one who is going to bring about the Eden that everybody hungered for. He was going to be the one to overturn all the effects of, the sin, of sin and the fall in the world. And Jesus here, he's saying that today those prophecies are fulfilled in him. From the fall of man, God had promised that he would make a way for man to dwell again with his people. He would make a way for that Eden-like situation, but even better, one without any evil in the garden, without the possibility of evil. So, from that first promise of salvation in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way up until this moment, the people who had heard these prophecies, were waiting, wondering, who is the offspring? Who's the one who's going to bring back Eden? Who's going who's to bring the kingdom of God where God and man can dwell again together? This is what Israel was waiting for, and Jesus says that it was fulfilled that day in Him. In Jesus what a moment for this little Nazarene synagogue, right? Jesus shows up to announce who he is and what he's about to do, and he doesn't announce it in the streets of Jerusalem. He doesn't announce it in Herod's palace. It's not in the temple court, but in a hometown, little rural, backcountry church, as it were. Jesus tells them in this little sermonette that he is the one who's going to fulfill these words. Not only does he announce who he is, he announces what he came to do. And these words from Isaiah that we just read capture his mission. So what is his mission? When you guys read that, what would you imagine the mission to be from Isaiah? Well, there's the answer for you. <laughs> maybe it's the uh, works. Maybe it's good works. Maybe it's, you know, he's going to come to help poor people. But ultimately, what, what Jesus is coming to do is to set captives free through the proclamation of the good news of the coming of the kingdom. Let me show you. So when you... Look at this text. Isaiah should be up there. I want you to notice the verbs that I've bolded. Or, more precisely, these are infinitives here that, um, oh, got the wrong one. Uh, there it is. I want you to notice these, these verbs. Three times, Jesus is said to, he's come to proclaim He's come to proclaim good news to the poor. He's, he's sent to proclaim liberty to captives and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then you have this other infinitive in there, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Why is this significant? It's significant for us to understand what Jesus has come to do.
The problem with mankind, a lot of people think, is just our poverty or our sickness. There's all kinds of things that we could say is the biggest problem with mankind today. We could present a lot of different things. But Jesus' mission being declared here is not first a charity mission. It's not first one in which he comes to make the poor rich and healthy. It is first a reconciliation mission. Let me explain. The problem with mankind is that we have been separated from God. The problem with mankind is, is not that we are poor or that we're sick or that we're dying, but first, that we have been separated from God. At the, at, at the Garden of Eden, when sin entered in, we were separated. And what was the result of sin? The result is death. The result is suffering. The result is poverty and all the effects of sin. But the, the core problem is sin. The core problem is that sin has, has separated us from God. So the, the biggest need for humanity is not for our bank accounts to be filled up. It's not even for us to have healthy bodies, but for our sin to be dealt with, for us to be reconciled to the living God who is the source of life and joy and peace and happiness. We preach this every single week, week here at All People's Church because it is central to the scriptures that God wants to reconcile us to himself. In order for us to be reconciled to God, sin must be dealt with. So he's come to proclaim good news to the poor. I want you to understand what this poor is talking about. In, in the Gospels, poor, especially in Luke, poor, the poor is a major theme. And, and while it does include economic status... The primary emphasis is not on economic status, but on heart posture. It's, it's talking about the poor in spirit, those who recognize their need for God. It's recognizing those who need, who recognize their need for God are the ones that will receive God's powerful rescue. So Isaiah and now Jesus, he is expounding on this spiritual poverty with several other images. Captives. Blindness, oppression, these are spiritual categories depicting our situation, that we are broken, that we are covered in sin. Do you know this about yourselves? Do you know that you were captive? Do you know that you were blind to your need for God, that you were oppressed by Satan? Do you know that this is the reality of all humanity without God? This is why Jesus came preaching. He came proclaiming to us a message. His primary mission was not healing church. His primary mission was not multiplying bread or raising the dead. He came preaching a message of good news. A good news to the spiritually poor, the blind, the captive. A message so powerful that it would indeed raise spiritually dead souls. That would cause us to see our need for him. It causes us to want to repent and come to God 
for salvation. One commentator notes that this word freedom here, anytime you see it in the book of Luke or Acts, it's referring to forgiveness of sins. So freedom is not first in Jesus' mind about setting you free in a social justice sense or setting you free from poverty, but dealing with your sin. So then what is the good news of Jesus? What is the good news that he's proclaiming? He is coming to this small little synagogue and he's saying, I will give you sight. I will set you free. I will give liberty to those who are oppressed. All these things that you've been longing for, all these things that you want and need, I will give them to you. If if you believe in me, if you believe in this message that the kingdom has come in me, that I am the king, how is one set free? By believing on the one sent from God. John 3.16. Jesus came preaching this message, and this same message is what will set you free today. The same message that the king has come to reconcile us to God. Believe on him and be set free from your sin. Our main problem in this world is not poverty, I repeat. It's not poverty. It's not hungry, hunger. It's not even justice issues, but rather our sin. The sin of our hearts, even right now, church. It's the fact that we're separated from God. Let me show you a little bit more evidence that Jesus' primary mission is to overthrow sin. So, Notice where Jesus stops reading in Isaiah 61. That will be the last text that was pulled up there. So we read, to proclaim the year of the, the Lord's favor, and the, Jesus stops right there. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, right? He doesn't add verse 2b, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Have you ever noticed that before? I remember the first time that was pointed out to me, I was like, what? He comes preaching this message of salvation, and, and this is so clear in the Isaiah text that he says is about him and that's fulfilled in him, and he stops before talking about vengeance. Why? Why does Jesus stop before talking about vengeance? Jesus has been sent first not to condemn the world, but that the world might be set free through him. John 3, 17. This is God's first task. This is Jesus' first task, to come and set free sinners. Not that we would receive his wrath in the first coming. Not that Israel's enemies would first be destroyed in the first coming, but that even the Jews' sin would be dealt with, so that all the world would find salvation from sin in the name of Jesus. If Jesus had come in the way that he's going to come in the second coming and wiped out all the enemies, he would have had to wipe out every man on earth. Vengeance would have come. God's wrath would have come. But that was not God's plan for us. Amen? He didn't want us to die in our sin, but he sent provision in the person of Jesus, the Son of God, so that we wouldn't bear the wrath of God. That is good news for us. He came to set us free from that wrath. He came to set us free from the oppression of sin and Satan. And here's 
What's so amazing, he set us free from that vengeance by himself, taking on the vengeance that we deserved. He would bear the wrath for us. He would take it on. At the cross, he perished for sin so that we could live eternally in God's presence, so that we could be restored to relationship with our Father. But you need to hear something. For those who are not believing, the scriptures teach that we're already condemned. The scriptures teach that we're already condemned. Implied in Jesus' quotation is that there is a coming vengeance. He's dealt with sin for those who cling to Him. But anyone who does not bow before Him, anyone who does not have faith in Him, will not enter His rest, but will receive God's wrath. And I just... Today is the day of salvation. Today is the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 61 says, and it's open right now in this period between Christ's first and second coming, but that day is coming to a close quickly. Jesus is going to return, and he is going to wipe out all enemies. He is going to wipe out those who are in submission to Satan and his workers. So he invites you now. He invites you to come and find refuge in him. I'm just urging you, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know Christ as your Savior, that's not clinging to Him as your righteousness, as your refuge, turn to Him. You could be as in over your head in sin and addiction as you can imagine, and all Christ wants you to do, head out of the mud, look to Him, look upon the cross, and receive the mercy that He went to the cross to give you. If you want healing, if you want to find rest, come and find it in Jesus. That's what he was offering that day. He said this scripture is fulfilled today in your hearing. Now, I've said that Jesus' mission was first to deal with sin, but this leaves us with an important question. If it's Jesus' first desire to deal with sin, does that mean that we should stop worrying about physical needs on earth? Should we stop trying to care for the poor? There are people that believe this. There are Christians that believe this. No. <laughs> you need to know this, that the good news of Jesus is not only dealing with the sin of the heart, but also with the effects of sin. It's not just about the heart, but also with the effects. As humans, we are made up not just of a body, not, or not just a soul, but also a body. And this is a good thing. We're not just immaterial spiritual beings. We're also physical beings. And God calls that good. He calls that good today. So if we focus only on the needs of the body, our soul will perish without God. That's what I just focused on. Without God, our, our bodies will perish. What's good if we feed everybody in the world if their souls are perishing? And yet, if we focus only on the needs of the soul, we neglect something that God calls good and beautiful. 
Something that's a part of his good design. That body and soul together would have salvation in Christ Jesus. God's salvation plan was to come and restore all things. His kingdom coming in was to restore both physical and spiritual so that we would have complete restoration in him. Amen? We have to know that without dealing with that root of all the evil we experience, the effects could never be dealt with. If sin is overcome, however, the effects will be undone. If sin is overcome, the effects of sin will also be undone. God's kingdom, I've said it again and again, God's kingdom will first advance in our hearts, but if it, adv- if it begins in our hearts, guys, it cannot stay there. God will bring about resurrection bodies for everyone who's hoping in Him, along with new heaven, and we will dwell with, forever with Him in a new heavens and a new earth, where all suffering, all pain will be done away with. That is the good news of the kingdom of God. It's not just our hearts. It's not just phys- or soul, but also physical. He wants to save us. And Jesus models this for us, right? We're going to see all through the book of Luke that Jesus heals. He, he raises the dead. He gives sight to the blind. He wants people to experience what the kingdom of God is going to be like. But yet we still know not everyone is going to be healed right now. Not everybody is going to be raised from the dead So he's given us a taste of both realities of his kingdom. And someday, all things will be made new when Jesus returns. But the question still remains, how is Jesus fulfilling his ministry? This leads us to the second point, Jesus' power. More than any author in the New Testament, Luke emphasizes, maybe, maybe I should say, more than any gospel writer, Luke emphasizes the Spirit's presence in the life of Jesus. Through Luke and Acts, we see the Spirit of God present all over. When, when, it, when you're talking about power, you're going to see the Holy Spirit close by. So let's back up to verse 14, and we read these words. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. That's not the first time I hope that you've seen the Spirit's presence in Jesus' life. But before before I show you some of the the, uh, context where the Holy Spirit has shown up in Jesus' life, I just want to answer briefly, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he's, He's one of the three members, one of the three persons of the Godhead. He's biblically described as the empowering figure behind all the prophets, miracles, all the teaching of the word, as well as the inspiration for the word. And the Spirit is described as the one who puts God's will and word into action and completes it, both, well, in, in creation, in salvation, and even in the recreation. The Holy Spirit works in tandem with God the Father and God the Son in such a way that He doesn't do anything unless the Father and the Son are doing it. They're working together as one. So what what then is Jesus' relationship with the Spirit? Let's just take a a, a review through Luke to show you up to this point what, what we've seen. 
It all began when Jesus was, was born. I'm just going to fly through this. An angel prophesied to Mary in Luke 1.35 that Jesus would be born of the Holy Spirit. He would be conceived in the power of the Holy Spirit. In 2.40, we're told that Jesus was a boy, as a boy filled with wisdom and the favor of God was resting upon him. This is pointing us to the Spirit's presence in Jesus' life. And then in chapter 3, verse 16, it's prophesied that Jesus, the one coming, is the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire. Indeed, this is just before Jesus himself would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He would come up out of the water and the Spirit would rest upon him. And then we're told that he was full of the Spirit and that he was even led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. Over and over and over again, we see the Holy Spirit next to Jesus' life and actions. And then, as we just read today's text, we're told that Jesus is returning in the power of the Spirit. And that the Spirit of the Lord was resting upon him for the fulfillment of his mission as shown in Isaiah 61. The Spirit is present everywhere that Jesus is going and and in everything he's doing. I wish we had time to just like walk through the whole Bible and and look at all the places where, where God's Spirit is present, where there is powerful work happening. So... Luke, who is also the author of Acts, he's trying to show the church where power for mission comes from. How did Jesus overcome Satan in the wilderness? It wasn't merely a knowledge of the word. We see Luke makes it very intentional to show us and full of the Spirit. Jesus, full of the Spirit. He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. That's how he overcomes. How does Jesus do all the things that he does? How does he do his miracles? How does he, how does he, uh, how does he teach? How does he, where does he, how does he know where to go? How does he know what to say? Even the effect of his work on the cross is described by scripture as being empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is why you see Jesus saying things like the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. John 5, 19. So Jesus lived every moment in dependence on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you, you hear me presenting this and you just are a little bit dumbfounded. Like why does Jesus, who is God, need the Holy Spirit? Like isn't, if he's God... His power, right? Why does Jesus need the Holy Spirit to do these things? If this is confusing to you, I promise you're in good company here. (laughs) The church has been wrestling with these sorts of mysteries for millennia. Trying to understand the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the scriptures teach us that in the mystery of the incarnation, Jesus, who became God, a God becoming man, he, he remained divine. Though he took on human flesh, he did not lose any of his divinity. We do not believe that Jesus lost any of his divinity. When it says in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself, we do not believe that's describing him laying aside his divinity or even his divine attributes. However, Theologians and the church for 
for centuries has taught that he did not willing and sorry, let me say it differently. He willingly limited himself in human body into a human body, and in so doing, he submitted himself always and only to the will of the Father. And so all that he was doing was not in his according to his divine attributes, unless sometimes he does. Sometimes he does do things that are like, only God can do that. But he only does those things in the power of the Spirit and according to the Father's will. That's complex. I wish we could spend a lot more time there. And the the big question that we might want to ask is, why is he doing this? Why does God need to do it this way? He's submitting himself to the Father in this way as a perfect son of God. We've been talking about Jesus being the fulfillment of everything that Adam was supposed to be. Everything that Israel was supposed to be. He is the one that we were supposed to be. And he's doing it all as our representatives and as an example to us. Jared Hawthorne, a longtime Greek professor at Wheaton College, wrote extensively on this subject in his book, The Presence and the Power. Ross pointed this this resource out to me. It's really helpful. He writes, Jesus faced life precisely like any other human being faces life, not as some colossus striding unfeelingly over the earth but as a person limited physically and mentally, exposed to all kinds of diseases, subject to all sorts of temptations. Why, we ask again, why did the living God choose to do this? Why did he choose to submit himself to human limitations and submit himself to only working in the power of the Holy Spirit? He did it as an example to us and as our representative on earth. This is really good news for us, and I'm going to explain why. Jesus was fulfilling the law perfectly for us, and he was doing all of this in the Holy Spirit. And here's, here's the million-dollar question. What does this have to do with us? So here's the third point, the church's mission. The church's mission. Jesus' mission will be fulfilled ultimately in us, the church. If you've been sleeping up to this point, I need, I need you to focus in because this, this is where we come in. The church is the means of God's mission being fulfilled on earth. Jesus didn't finish it all. Like He, he said that we were going to be the, the reason that, that his mission is ultimately filled. Let me, let me get into that. So before Jesus went to the cross, he said to his disciples, verse 21 of John 20, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, what did he say? Acts 1.8. He said, wait, wait for the Holy Spirit to come on you, and then you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth, Samaria also, every part of the world. And then on the day of Pentecost, what happens? God's Spirit was poured out on that day like flames of fire on people's heads, the 120 disciples, and they begin to proclaim the gospel. What, what happens in that moment? Two things. 
Number one, let's see the slide. <laughs> a proclamation of the good news of the kingdom in Jesus. What does Jesus do? What does Jesus say that they're going to do? He says, you are going to be sent just like I was going to send. You're going to be my witnesses. And Peter on that day, he says, listen, people, we're not drunk. This is exactly what God said would happen. And he proclaimed the good news. And then secondly, 3,000 people were set free. I hope you guys see the correlation from Jesus' mission as proclaimed in Isaiah 61, that he is proclaiming good news to the poor. He's proclaiming liberty to captives. He's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, and he's going to set free captives. And what do we see happening? We see the disciples on the day of Pentecost proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The fact that Jesus has died for your sins and risen from death and he is alive. And every, on that day, 3,000 people were set free and were baptized into the church. That was our beginning. The church was launched that day when the Holy Spirit entered into his people. And the mission of God has been advancing from that day forward until now. And Christ is now alive in you. He's alive in me. Oh, I get excited about this stuff. Like this is where it matters for us right now. What Jesus said in Isaiah 61 is fulfilled. It's touched you. You were set free. I hope you were. If you're trusting Jesus, he set you free. And he's got a job for you. The church's mission is the same as Christ's. And the power of the Spirit through us, the living Christ, wants to set captives free. Christ, who is alive right now, said that he wouldn't leave us as orphans, but that he would come to us by his Spirit, that the Helper would come to us, and that he would empower us to go as witnesses to this message of the resurrection, for us to proclaim that the good news of the kingdom has come in Christ Jesus. That's what we do every week here. And we hope and pray that you're doing in your workplace. We're trying to equip you for that. Church, you need to know that our salvation is not an end in itself. Israel was tempted to believe that. They were tempted to believe that they could just kind of be whoever they wanted to be. They could enjoy their prosperity and wealth in Israel. But no, God said you're intended to be priests to the world. That everyone see and know that Yahweh is the true and living God. Church, we too fall into that same trap where we become just uh, satisfied and stagnant and the Spirit of God is in us but we're not being witnesses to the earth. We're not being priests to the world to show everyone that Jesus has come, that the kingdom has come and that the day is quickly coming where that, that is gonna, uh, his, the day of salvation will be closed. We are the ambassadors of God. When we encounter, what, sorry, when people encounter us, God's people, people should feel like they're encountering God themselves. Let me explain that. That's kind of a big statement. When, when someone sees God's people, when someone sees us, they should feel, because the fruit of the Spirit is so pre, uh, present on our life, because we have such a relationship with Jesus, people should feel like they're in the presence of God. That's what we want for you. We have been called as ambassadors 
calling other people to be reconciled to God. We've brought this, we bring the same message to the lost world that Jesus brought to us. Be reconciled to God. The difference is we're not Jesus, we're not the Savior, we're pointing people to the Savior, but we're preaching the same message. Jesus said, believe the good news, the kingdom is fulfilled in me, trust in me, you'll be saved. And we say the same thing, but we point away from ourselves to the living Christ. So for my final point, let me ask you, what or who is the church's power? Let me hear you. What or who is the church's power? Amen. <laughs> I'm glad that wasn't on the screen. Because <laughs> then I would have said you're cheated big time. But I think I've done my job. If you can come away saying the spirit of God is my power for that mission. The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you, church. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. When you believed in Christ, you were empowered by the same spirit that empowered Jesus, Ephesians 1.20. And you have become the temple of the living God. You have become the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19. So that God dwells in me and you right now. The living Christ is alive in you right now. The Holy by the Holy Spirit. This is amazing because it took Christ's death for that to happen. The curtain on the moment that Christ died, the curtain was torn in two from top, top to bottom, signaling that, that the Holy of Holies was open that we could enter in, that we could be reconciled to God, that we could have life with God. And that we would be able to dwell with God in the way that he intended us to dwell with him all the way back in Eden, forever. And that all the effects of sin from being separated from God would be shed from us. Being united to Jesus, every one of you today could claim those words from Isaiah 61 as your own because of Jesus. In him, you indeed have been anointed by the Holy Spirit to set captives free. I probably shouldn't go on a tangent because I think I'm probably way over already, but <laughs> first time I heard a preacher get, get up and he, he went, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me with the Spirit to proclaim good news to the captive. He said, the Spirit of the Lord God is on me. He was talking about Him. And I was like, what is He saying? That was Jesus who said that. He said that about Himself. And then I realized, He's right. Like the Scriptures teach this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon you and me to set captives free. But here's the big question for us today, and this, this is the, the big application point. Is this practically, functionally true in your life right now? Are you, number one, aware of the Spirit's empowering presence for mission in your life? And number two, are you actually living in that power? 
Are you living in it? Maybe you know that the Spirit is present for, for mission, but you're not living in the power. Let me, let me answer those, those two questions or, or, or press into those. Are you aware? I need to say, and I hope you've heard this the whole time, that when I say that, that Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit has come to you, you need to know that you can't have any more of the Holy Spirit. If, if you get baptized once in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes to you, and that is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> There's not a, a, a junior Holy Spirit that lives in like the little ones in our church, or if you're like a, you know, not a very strong Christian, he's, he's like less in you. No, you have the Holy Spirit. You have him. You need to hear that. And you have everything in that Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, to walk in powerful witness, to walk in holiness unto Jesus' name. However, however, I think many of us are ignorant to the Holy Spirit's power in our life. We don't realize that He's present to give us power for effective and bold witness and for, for holy living. I think we talk most often about holiness. We talk about how the Holy Spirit is present for, to help us overcome sin. We don't often talk about how the Spirit is present and active in our lives so that you can be powerful, bold, effective witnesses on earth. And I think it's simply because we're, we're unaware. I heard one pastor say it's kind of like we're living off the grid of the city's electric. You know, we, we don't, we, we know that it's there and yet we're choosing to live off the grid. And so what, what I want for you is to know that He is available to you right now for, for more, for more powerful and effective witness. And I forget this. I told you right at the beginning of this sermon, I forget all the time. I, I, I hear the, Satan's voice saying, who are you? You're not worthy to, to be an effective witness. I hear these lies. He's, he's attacking our identity as Christians all the time, saying you have nothing to offer. And we live in shame all the time as Christians. We let sin be the thing that defines us. We let our weakness, our lack of training, be the thing that defines us when Christ says, no, you have everything you need. The Spirit is present in your life. And I'm not, I'm not saying here that we don't get equipped for mission. I'm just saying that if you have the Holy Spirit, boy, you have power. Number two, if you know this is true, the, the question is, are you living in His power for mission? This is the day of salvation, church. I, I've been proclaiming this, that this window of opportunity for the, the lost to come into Christ's kingdom is, it is ending soon. And we don't know how much longer our family and the unreached people of the unreached peoples of the world and, and our coworkers are going to have to turn to Jesus. And some of you, I think this has been most true of me throughout my life. I want to be a bold witness. I want to do more, and I simply just don't know how. I simply don't know how. Maybe that's you. You, you. you just, you can't seem to figure out how do I get, how do I become like what Sam is telling me to become, this, this amazing disciple maker? How do I become what the pastors are saying? I believe the answer starts first 
and asking God for more of his spirit. I know that's a little controversial. And you just heard me say, you have the Holy Spirit. You don't, you know, it's not, you don't have less of the Holy Spirit or more of the Holy Spirit. But, but why, why am I saying that? Why am I saying, ask for more of the Holy Spirit? Here's, here's what I'm trying to say. If you know and believe that you have the Holy Spirit, just like the disciples did in Acts, What does your prayer life look like? And when you, when you sit and you're, you're, you're asking God for, for more, Lord, help me to be an effective witness, what, what does that look like? Um, when you look at Acts, you, you see in there a, a number of times where people that have already received the Spirit of God are said to receive additional fillings of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example from Acts chapter 4, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were, meet, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This was after the day of Pentecost. This is after they had already received the Spirit. I could give you many more examples of moments where the Spirit of God came on. There was a fresh filling for the disciples for effective witness. And here at All Peoples, the pastors believe, I've already said this, but I want to say it again, the, the baptism of the Spirit is once. At, when you get converted, you receive the Holy Spirit. But we also believe that God gives us as much as we are hungry for more with effective witness and more effective submission to him that God will give us more and more of his spirit, more additional fillings. We covered this more robustly in a midweek podcast. If you haven't listened to that, take a listen. And if you have questions about what I'm saying, we can totally talk more. But in that podcast, I, we, we brought up uh, an analogy that, that theologian Wayne Grudem uh, mentions, and it offers a really really helpful insight on this. He says that, that for the Christian, the spirit present in us is like a balloon. The, the air is there, but that balloon can get bigger or smaller, right? It's still the same air. It's still the same content. But for some reason, but, but there's like a possibility for it to get bigger or smaller. How does it get bigger? It gets bigger by greater submission to the Lord. It gets bigger by saying, God, use us. Use us as bold witnesses in the face of opposition. Use me. Have me. Fill me. I'm yours. How does it get diminished? The scripture talks about the, the spirit being quenched. How does it get quenched? It, get, it gets quenched by sin. It gets quenched when the spirit is, is asking you to, to be effective in your witnessing, to, to resist that temptation. And when you over and over and over again say no to him, that's how the Spirit gets quenched in us. So our prayer for you today is that you would be aware. That you would be aware of this great reality that you both have the Spirit and that you have access to more of the Holy Spirit as we submit to Him every single day. So I've tried to show you today that Jesus fulfilled His mission in the power of the Spirit and that He empowered us 
to do the same. That's the main point of the sermon today. Jesus fulfilled his mission in the power of the Spirit, and he empowers us to do the same. I'm going to invite Dale up. And in these next few minutes, as we, as we sing and we reflect, um, I want us to simply be asking God for more of his Holy Spirit for mission. Asking God for more of his empowering presence for us. I don't know if you've ever done that before. But all we're saying when we do this, all we're saying is, God, I depend on you and the means that you've given us for power to be effective witnesses, to live holy lives, is your Holy Spirit. So give me more. Help me to be more submissive to you. Yeah, feel free to start. And I'm, I'm just going to lead us in a, in a prayer here in just a minute. But some, a couple things I want you to realize as we go to prayer. The devil and his servants love to remind us that we're unworthy of having God. And that, that is the true reality that your sin makes you unworthy of him. But the good news is God is not judging you based on your worthiness today, but Christ's. So that is why Jesus says that if we ask the Holy Spirit, he's not going to give, ask for the Holy Spirit, he's not going to give us a stone when we ask for bread. He's going to give you more of the Holy Spirit. And then one other thing, for some of us getting more of the Holy Spirit today means greater surrender to Jesus. And so I just want to challenge us, if there is any sin in your life that you've been coddling, that you've not been giving up to the Lord If you want more of the Holy Spirit today, it means you saying, Jesus, clean house for me right now. I don't want to submit to to the enemy anymore. I want to be led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So now is a time for asking God for that. So why don't we just bow our heads now and and we'll seek him together for, for more of the Holy Spirit.